Today's episode of the Mighty Parenting Podcast is sponsored by ibme.com. We know that mindfulness practices support healing and good mental health in our teens and in ourselves. IBME knows this, and they have been teaching teens mindfulness and meditation practices for years. And then last year, when COVID struck, they moved their practices online to keep supporting our teens. They're continuing online training retreats and programs, things like their monthly Rainbow Family LGBTQIA community meditations, weekly communities of color meditations, weekly live meditations, equity and interdependence community conversations, and more. Just go to ibme.com and check the calendar for the latest scheduling. And while you're on there, be sure to check out their summer retreat schedule. They're going to have both online and in-person retreats this summer, including a retreat for communities of color and their first LBGTQIA retreat. Just go to ibme.com and check the calendar. Welcome to Mighty Parenting podcast with real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a community where we help you raise teens and parent 20-somethings so they can become happy, successful, and emotionally healthy adults. I'm Sandy Fowler, stress relief coach, speaker, and host of the Mighty Parenting podcast. Quick reminder, pop over to mightyparenting.com and grab your free email series on how to talk to your teen. You get a few quick tips over the course of a few weeks that can make a big impact on your communication and your relationship with your teen. All right, parents, we bring home that first little bundle of joy and we have all these big dreams. And then we bring home the second one or the third or the fourth. And those dreams, they include these visions of all these kids being happy siblings, enjoying each other and loving each other and having each other's backs. And sometimes we get some of that and sometimes we don't. And we are definitely not dreaming about the arguing and the competition and the turbulence in their relationships. And that's not what we want for our kids, but it's there. So what do we do about it? Well, today we have Kira Dorian and Dina Thayer helping us to sort this out. Kira and Dina are co-hosts of the Raising Adults podcast, and they are co-founders of Future Focused Parenting, where they coach parents to make intentional parenting choices that set families up to thrive rather than just survive. So Kira and Dina, thank you for joining us to help us sort this out and welcome to Mighty Parenting. Thank Thank you you for having us. So today, as I said, you know, we want to talk about sibling relationships and we've spent a lot of time at Mighty Parenting talking about the parent-child relationship, the parent-teen, the parent-20-something, the parent-tween. We actually have not addressed these sibling relationships and yet they're so incredibly important. And I would love if you guys could talk a little bit, you, you express it so beautifully, you know, why are these sibling relationships so incredibly important? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, and I think that one of the things we say a lot at Future Focus Parenting is that the sibling relationship is really the first peer relationship that your child has. 
And so it's going to set them up for how they are going to engage with future peers, whether that's at work, in their friendships, in their romantic relationships, um, what's happening at home and, and the dynamic that we create between our siblings and the way that we help them learn to problem solve and work together and build up their relationship. All those things serve them later down the line as they move into those peer relationships. Dina, I don't know if you want to add to that, but that's sort of the jumping off point of why we feel it's important. Oh yeah, I absolutely, I, I second everything Kira said. It is about laying a foundation for relational interactions and how they navigate that later. And as the title of our podcast suggests, we are about not raising kids. We are about raising fully functioning, emotionally healthy contributing and responsible adults. And we really believe that relationships are one element of that. So what better place to start than in the home with your brothers and sisters and getting a chance to practice these skills. And I, I like the way that you guys are talking about this because you're not saying, how do we create harmony? How do we make this all comfortable and pretty? You're saying, how do we help them practice and learn these relationship skills? So what might that look like when our kids are learning this, when they're experimenting on their siblings? Mm -hmm. Go for it, Dina. (laughs) I was just, I was chuckling because I like the word experimenting. (laughs) And I, and I am the self-professed word nerd on our podcast of the two co-hosts. I'm the one who's, I love the mnemonic devices and the acronyms. So when I, when a word strikes my funny bone, so sorry for the laughter there, but it really is, they are kind of experimenting. This is kind of about, you know, flexing a muscle they haven't used before. And this is the training ground. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like a lot of false starts, to be honest. It looks like mistakes and it looks like sibling squabbles and getting it wrong sometimes and hurting each other's feelings. But what's great about that is then we as parents have this wonderful opportunity to, I think it's twofold. We have an opportunity to model healthy relationships and be that example, but we also have this great opportunity to teach them. And what's so great about that is there's this assumption that we understand you don't know how to do this yet. We're going to help you learn. And I think as our kids grow older, now I've got five kids that range from 17 to 22. So I'm, I'm coming into this season where we've moved through a lot of these little sibling squabbles when they're younger and are starting to see the fruit of those labors. But what it looks like in the beginning sometimes is some fumbling and bumbling and you might have a kerfluffle. One thing that I think can be helpful, and I'm outing myself even more here as the word nerd, is leading with your vocabulary. This is something Kira and I talk a lot about, even with other topics. But with the sibling relationship, it does become really critical. So one one way we can lay a great foundation for encouraging positive sibling bonds is the way we talk about it. And that includes the positive side in terms of what Kira described. This is their first peer relationship. So even calling siblings your friend, you know, your brother is one of your first and best friends. Your sister is your friend, really using that language, but also the other side of the coin, when they're having a struggle, rather than calling someone a name, saying you're acting like a stinker, or you guys are having a fight, what does it look like when we say, wow, it looks like you might need some help with problem solving, 
or even with olders. You know what? I can see that you guys are disagreeing about who should get the shower first. Do you need some support with that? That's very different than the words fight and, you know, coming in with these kind of harsh words. So I think another kind of practical tool you can take from that, hey, what does this look like? It looks like a lot of learning, but what can we do? One thing we can do is lead with our vocabulary and be careful about how we speak about the sibling and about their interactions with their siblings. Yeah. And I think just to kind of go to once you've used this vocabulary and you've maybe shifted the way you're talking about what's happening. The other thing we talk about at Future Focus Parenting about pretty much every topic we cover is the concept of normalizing things for our kids and how important it is that kids recognize that everything that happens to them basically is normal um, and that they're not strange or different or, you know, a bad kid because they've made a mistake or they've hurt someone's feelings or they're feeling a big feeling like all those things are just really normal. So when you're helping your kids problem solve, letting them know this is really normal. Like when people live together in the same house, particularly right now, <laughs> when we're all like really up in each other's grill, um, you know, when people are, are living together and you've got different people and different personality types, there's just going to be conflict. Like that's very normal and helping our kids recognize like, you know, this is a normal thing that happened. If you can use your own experience, if you have siblings like, oh yeah, my sister and I used to struggle with this too. This is really normal, but we got to figure out how are we going to, how are we going to handle it? How are we going to cope with it? Well, how are we going to treat each other respectfully as we work through this conflict, but starting with the normalizing piece um, before you move into, you know, starting with the vocabulary of like, we're going to call this problem solving or conflict resolution instead of a fight or an argument. We're not going to name call each other. Next, we're going to normalize it and say, hey, by the way, everything that you're experiencing here is actually like super duper normal. And then we help them work through the problem solving skills that they're going to need when they move into adulthood with their peers that then they will have practiced and experimented with. I love that word too, um, at home. I love the really, it's a positive approach, even for the things that don't feel so positive, the arguing, the bickering, there's still a, that positive bend to it. The, their learning skills were teaching. And you asked, Dina, you said, you know, like, do you need support with this? And in that moment, they could even say, no, we don't and continue bickering and arguing a little bit. And it's, it seems to me that it's okay as long as they're not breaking whatever your house rules are about maybe they start throwing things because they're that emotional or they're doing name calling and that's against your house rules because we're respectful. But to even give them some space to blow off a little steam and then maybe come back later and say, so what do you think about how that went? To, to take that view of it, that coaching relationship that we're building with our teens and to continue to coach them and walk them through it, especially if we're parents who maybe just didn't know before how to handle it. So maybe we micromanaged or we focused on just getting rid of the fighting and maybe we didn't help them build all these skills they need. So I guess I'm kind of heading down that road and I'm already thinking in that line, right? What if the kids don't have those skills yet? So what advice do you have us for us as parents if we're someone who maybe we haven't taught our kids those skills at this point and they are already teenagers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, some, some parents come into this a little bit later or aren't familiar with these strategies or maybe it wasn't modeled well for them. And so 
trying to access skills to teach their kids when they didn't have them in their own tool belt is pretty challenging, right? So there's a couple of things. And again, I mean, some of this comes down to what are, what is the goal? And the goal here, we're talking about encouraging positive sibling bonds. Notice we didn't say forcing them to get along. <laughs> you know, it's really, it's, we can't force it and we can't determine a behavioral outcome. What we can do is encourage the emotional intelligence and the skills that enable them to have a positive relationship. So that really becomes, becomes the goal. So say you're coming in on this late. I actually have a little experience with this too, because I'm in a blended family. So while I had my two bio kids from the start, I got three extras when I got married and I hadn't been with them from the start. So essentially I was coming in late on their sibling bonds and also how they were going to interact with my two children as step siblings. And there are actually still things that you can do. One is think again about that encourage versus force. We can't force kids to be huge fans of each other. And we can't force them to think their sibling is the best thing since sliced bread, especially if that's not the foundation we've been able to lay from the start. However, we can say as parents and, and as the kind of operators of the home, what is important in our family. We can do that and say, here's what's important to us. Here's how our home is going to run. I love that you mentioned earlier, Sandy watching, letting them maybe have the room to go back and forth a little bit, but you might intervene if they started throwing something because maybe that's against your house rules. And that's one of the things I wanted to mention. If you're coming in on this later, make sure that there's ground rules for how we handle conflict, that it's okay as, as the parents in the home who are navigating this, even if you're newer at this, it is okay to say, you know what, in this house, we speak to each other respectfully, or in our family, it's important to us that we don't name call. And if I see those things, I am going to step in and offer some support as, as much as possible. We want to have some ground rules. So that's one thing is don't be shy about setting some ground rules, even if you're newer at this. Another one though, is to think about, and, and interestingly, we talk about this with, with youngers too. So Kira might want to piggyback on this in a moment, but because I have all these older kids, I just want to talk about how it applies. We also talk about the logistics of conflict. And what I mean by that is if you're helping your kids develop a sibling bond and a, a squabble does come up and they and they need some, some help because there's there's some problem solving to be done, we have two things we encourage parents to think about that might seem a little counterintuitive. One is levels and the other is location. And this works really with youngers all the way up to teens and young adult children. And the levels idea is that you don't have one of your kids standing over the other one and wagging their finger at them while they're sitting on the ground. That it really sets up a dynamic of one person is definitely the powerful person and so we really encourage kids who are, are needing to problem solve to get on the same level. Maybe they both take a seat or maybe they both stand up. Be on the same level. That really signals we're equal in this conflict and we want to work it out. And then that location piece, maybe you designate an area in your house. Maybe it's for your own sanity that you say, oh, you may not have this shouting 
squabble right here in the kitchen, <laughs> we're going to go over here. So it could be you've designated a room. Maybe there's a really cozy couch somewhere where we go and sit there and do our problem solving. And even with olders, it's really fascinating how that sends the message to them that they're going to solve it because, oh, we're going to the problem solving couch. You know, we know this is where we go to work it out. Amazing the difference in perspective when they know when I go here, we work through things. So there's already a different expectation. So I would say, even if you're coming to this a little later in the game, those are two things that are really helpful. Yeah. And, and Dina and I say on the show all the time, pretty much from age three, all the way up, it is never too late to communicate with your kids that you're making a course correction. Like from the time they are able to understand English or whatever language you speak in your home, they are capable of having a conversation with you where you say, you know what, we got this wrong, or you know what, this isn't going very well. (laughs) We want to do something about that. And as parents, what an amazing thing to model for your kids, no matter where you are in this, to model for them, you know what, when I notice that something's not working, I'm going to sit down and figure out how to make it better. And I'm going to bring you into that conversation and I'm going to let you know what's coming and how things are going to change and make you a part of that. I mean, especially for teens who are really trying to figure out their own identities and really wanting to feel like adults inside the family. That's an amazing opportunity to make them feel really seen and heard. And so there's nothing to stop a parent sitting them down and saying, you know what? I have noticed that the dynamic between you guys is not working. So here's some of the things I I think we should do differently. We're going to do this. We're going to have a problem solving couch. If I see, you know, behavior that doesn't match the values in our home, I am going to intervene, like have the conversation about how it's going to look different. So they're not shocked and suddenly going, why is mom, what's a problem solving couch, you know, (laughs) bring them into the, into the conversation. That is, that's really huge and, and important because they're going to then feel like a member of a team. We talk a lot about creating a team dynamic. And I think when siblings see themselves as teammates and a part of a bigger team, that also contributes to that positive relationship between them. Thank you, Kira. That's so important. And she's so right. When you're willing to make progress and changes and even course corrections, that actually makes you a great parent. Mm-hmm. not a bad parent. That makes you a great parent when you're willing to observe what's happening and say, oh, this could be better. And and here are the changes we're going to make and communicating to that to your children. So thank you for bringing that to the table. So true. And not only does it make you a better parent, it actually improves your relationship with your teen or young adult because Absolutely. it's authenticity and they gravitate to that. They have great BS detectors and they are living in this house. They can see what is working and what is not. And to pretend that things are working or to pretend you know the answer when you obviously haven't known the answer for their entire lives doesn't go over very well. But to come in and go, hey, you know, I got this wrong. We've been doing this wrong we're going to try this and we're going to see how it works. I really think that 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 helps our kids and helps our relationship. And I'm wondering, Dina, if, if you found that in blending your family, because that has so many nuances and so many different layers to it when you are bringing together two households. It does. And yes, we found that to be true when we could invite them into the conversation it made such a difference. So when we met, our kids were seven, eight, nine, 10, and 12. And right away, so we were kind of in that grade school in between land. And 
we had family meetings and we invited them into conversations and we admitted when we got things wrong. And what was so great about that, Kira mentioned the modeling earlier, we were able to model, guess what? We've never done this before either. <laughs> step, step family living is new for all of us. So we're going to step in it sometimes. And we got to talk about that and make course corrections. And it's interesting as it relates to the context of this conversation, and Kira knows this because we're friends, but we actually got real excited the first time our kids started fighting because we were like, oh, they're getting comfortable. <laughs> you know, at the beginning, everyone's kind of trying to figure out where what's my role? Where am I in this new blended family of seven? And they, when our kids got comfortable enough to start bickering as step siblings, we were like, yes, we're making progress. So a little different. I, I think it does depend on your family dynamic, what you're looking for. And we did still do all the things we're talking about and we had to intervene sometimes, but it was really also this beautiful sign of, oh, we're becoming a family. We're getting comfortable. So that was kind of fun. But Absolutely, Sandy. We saw this play out time and time again, where we had to, oh, we got to tweak this and we need to make this little correction. But inviting that that conversation, inviting their input into how it looked really enhanced my relationship with my stepchildren too, because they saw that I valued what they brought to the table. And I think that helped our relationship as they moved into those teen years. And, and my husband's kids are the three oldest, so they're all now young adults. And I think we have the relationships we have now because they felt heard and valued while they were younger. Which is and all, go ahead, Kira. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, there's this, there's this other piece too, that I think no matter what your family dynamic looks like, that as parents is so important. And, and this pertains to the sibling dynamic, but it's bigger than that. And that is our, our ability to see the humanity in each other, to see that we're all really humans who make mistakes. We're all going to bump into each other sometimes. How we handle those mistakes is what matters. And I think that authenticity piece that you're talking about is never more prevalent than when a parent is able to go, I made a mistake. I'm going to model for you that I'm human and I'm going to do my best to remedy it and do right by you. And then as we're teaching our kids who are bumping into each other, like, hey, your sibling made a mistake, but we know what that's like because we make mistakes. Like we're all human beings kind of bumping into each other. How do I model empathy? How do I teach empathy? How do I encourage empathy between my, you know, my kids? The way that comes together that bond that comes from a family where everybody's kind of seeing each other as human and developing a skill set for our kids of forgiveness, a skill set of empathy. I mean, that serves them in their relationship with their sibling, in their relationship with us as their parents, in all their future relationship. That just builds a better adult. Mm -hmm. And multiple times now, I've seen a thread running through here where you guys multiple times you've touched on without using the word, you've touched on the idea of expectations. And I want to start with parental expectations. I think, again, it goes back to this dream of, oh, our kids are going to be best friends and they're always going to really get along and support each other. But that's not what you guys have said. You have said positive sibling relationships. So can you shed a little light on some of the, the variation within that term, like what this might look like, not just when our kids are little, but as you said, you know, we're looking at future focused parenting, right? We want our kids. Yes. We want them to learn skills and to get along with their peers, 
We also want them to have each other when they're adults. So they have each other to lean on out in the world. So what are some of the variations in what a positive sibling relationship can look like? That's a great question. <laughs> I love that question. I, you know, I can only speak to what I see with my kids and then my own experience. I'm an only child, so I don't have siblings. Um, and I think that the expectation of a positive sibling relationship is not, as you said, it's not everybody gets along all the time. I mean, we'd all love that. That would certainly make my life easier if my kids got along all the time, but actually it wouldn't prep them for the world at all. And so for me, a positive relationship is one where they know how to work through their conflict and come out lovingly on the other side. That's what I'm looking for. So yes, my life would be more peaceful if they were like happy-go-lucky all the time, but actually in terms of, you know, we're all about raising adults, right? So the adults that I want to raise are adults who can come into conflict with someone who can be empathetic in that conflict, who can be compassionate, who can be forgiving of themselves and of the other person, and who have the critical thinking and problem-solving skills to find a solution, come out the other side better and stronger than they were coming into the conflict. And I'll just piggyback and add one other piece, other way that this can look, Sandy, is this also looks like kids who grow up to be teens, who grow up to be adults, who also know how to effectively interact with people maybe they aren't a huge fan of. Yeah. Because let's face it, not everyone, I mean, we're really blessed. My two bio kids love each other. Kira's twins love each other. But we recognize that does not end up being the case across the board. So it may even be coming out with problem solving skills, the ability to stay civil and kind while we have discourse that may be challenging, even with someone who is hard for you, because sometimes even sibling personalities clash some and your sibling is the person that's hard for you. So again, it's back to this idea of you get to practice that. I saw that maybe a little more in our home because there were kids who were related by blood and, and not. So sometimes it was learning to work with a sibling who, hey, I didn't even know you for the first decade of your life. I'm still learning how you are wired, but I can at least flex the muscle of using this skill to negotiate with you, to share a bathroom with you, mm -hmm. to work to build a friendship with you, even though it might never feel like you're the same as my sister who I've known since I was born. And I think that's a translatable skill. And so that's, it, to answer your question, what are the different ways this can look like? Kira's answer is absolutely true. And this answer is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. because sometimes it's a little more challenging, but they'll also come out with skills to deal with people who are more more difficult. And they can, and they can have um, a calm and loving relationship that looks different too. I, I've shared stories before of, uh, I have one brother, he's four years older, so he's a boy, I'm a girl, there's a four-year age difference. And so there was the normal arguing and things growing up, little sister tagging along, yada, yada. As adults, we get along very well. And we enjoy each other's company. We've done family vacations together. We work on projects well together. And yet we are not the people who get on the phone and call each other every week or every month or whatever. It's like, we can also just see each other at Christmas and Easter and be like, oh, okay, you know, you're okay. And he's the first person I'd call outside of my husband if I'm in trouble and I mm -hmm. needed something. So 
it does, it isn't necessarily that, well, and I say best friend scenario, but again, too, I have a best friend who, you know, at times we have spent tons of time together. And then there are other times just due to, uh, you know, us having little kids living states away from each other that we only had the chance to talk on the phone because, you know, that was before all the internet connections, right? We talk on the phone a couple of times a year and that was okay too. So I, I just want to remind us as parents that it's okay. There isn't one way for this relationship to look or feel. And as you guys said, we don't want to try and push our kids into some preconceived notion or box, but rather I, I love this idea that you talk about, about building these skills and in their skills, but their skills based around values. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, we just want them to a positive sibling relationship. As you said, it, there's a, a bunch of different ways that can look. And I think the opposite of it is, oh, I have to see my brother at Christmas. Right. That's what we're aiming against. <laughs> right? You know, or it's contentious or, you know, it gets extra complicated when a loved one passes away or, or whatever it is that, that the relationship is a positive one, that it's not one that makes you like inwardly groan or want to run away or want to not go to that family event. And that there's a huge range there of everything from, you know, we can be in the same room and it's comfortable and it's fine all the way to they're my best friend. And we talk every single day and there's not a right or wrong inside of there. Um, but kids are much more likely to find their own dynamic if it hasn't been contentious in the home all the time. And so if they've got the skill set that they need to kind of work on their relationship, they're going to settle into what that looks like in a more comfortable way for themselves. Instead of it being circumstantial, they're going to choose it. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. It does. And I'm wondering in your work, do you find, as you talk to parents, that it actually makes it more contentious when the parents are pushing them to get along? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It's almost, it's almost like they want to resist it then because it's, well, and I mean, that's true for so many areas of parenting, right? When it's, when it's, oh, you're making me now I want to resist it even more. And so if there's some pushback there. Yeah. My best friend and her brother, I mean, they barely tolerate each other. And, and it came from exactly that. The parents were just constantly like, but, you know, he's your brother, hug it out, you know, and they, you know, gr grin and through gritted teeth, like march toward each other to hug when they didn't really want to hug and they really were mad at each other and they weren't taught how to navigate the tensions between them so that they could do it themselves and figure out what they wanted, you know? Right. And so we've talked about expectations and what our kids can learn and, and we, touched on a little bit, a couple of tips that parents need to know. The level and location, I love that. I love the problem-solving couch because our brains are wired that if we have this space in the house where this is where we go to do this, as soon as we head there, after a little while, our brain kicks into that gear. So I love that. And I'm going to encourage Mighty Parents to go and get, you know, go subscribe. Subscribing is free for podcasts, folks. So besides subscribing to Mighty Parenting, go subscribe to Kira and Dina's podcast. They are, um, their website is Future Focused Parenting, but their podcast is Raising Adults. So get tips and strategies there because there's no way we can go into all of them. So what I would love right now, if you guys could share like, 
what do you think would be the most impactful thing to begin teaching our teens? If, if we're trying to hone this, we haven't really, or we haven't done it before past the couple things we talked about with sort of setting up the expectations, setting up the concept, actually teaching them problem solving tools or empathy, like where's Where's the most impactful place to begin that? Mm, I love this question, Sandy. That's like some great little takeaway nuggets, which is great. Um, I just have two really quick ones. And of course, I mean, this is besides, of course, intervene if somebody's actually getting hurt or things are getting thrown. But I think one really important one with, with teens and young adults is that go ahead and make yourself available, but as much as possible, hand off the ownership of problem solving to them. I always said to my kids, you know, I'd, I'd like to let you try to work this out, but let me know if you get stuck. And that gives them the autonomy to say, okay, you know what? We, we probably do have the skills to figure this out. And what a great message it sends that my parents trust us to, to do this. So I just, I really want to say hand off what you can, but make yourself available because sometimes they do get stuck or it escalates to a level where you need to intervene. And then my other one, and this helps them see each other in a positive life, uh, light rather. And we did this in our blended family too, is whenever you can let the sibling be seen as a resource and as a help. So if one of my bio kids say, asked a question about baseball. Our oldest, my oldest stepson played baseball. So I might say, you know what? Your brother has a lot of experience with that. Why don't you go ask him about that? Let them see each other as a safe place to fall, as a listening ear, or as a resource to learn things. It helps them learn that's someone I can go to too, not just mom or dad or my friends. I can go to my brother or sister. So those are my two tips. Yeah. Mine would be, I think the empathy piece is really key. And, and, you know, if you're coming to this later in the game and you're like, wow, I don't know that I've taught that to my kids. It's never too late to teach empathy. Um, and it, it really is about seeing the other person a little more clearly. So when we're talking about youngers, I know you have some um, listeners who have younger kids thinking about even just something as simple as good guys and bad guys. Like in our home, we're always wondering what happened to the Joker in his childhood that makes him behave that way. Like really searching for where, where is the behavior I'm seeing coming from? How can I be compassionate and understanding what piece of this actually might have nothing to do with me? What part is mine that I have to own? And so with teens, I think you can still be asking those questions. You know, if you have a, a kiddo who's come to you and they're complaining about their brother, asking great questions, asking questions that help them experience empathy. What do you think's going on for your brother today? Or I wonder, do you think that he was trying to be hurtful? I wonder if maybe there was something else going on, um, trying to help your kids see each other more clearly. Like, hmm, you know, I remember last week, I feel like there was a similar situation, but in reverse, like, I, I guess everyone struggles with that, um, you know, <laughs> so helping them kind of see each other more clearly, um, the empathy piece. And then the last thing I would add, and this is from littles all the way up through teens, is teaching really good active listening skills. It's something we're really lacking, I think, generally speaking, and that if we can help our kids grow into being good active listeners, um, we're just going to have a better world. But Dina and I talk all the time about eye contact, like, please, look at your sister while she's talking to you. Um, please put your phone away while you guys are, are having this conversation. Um, the levels thing, you know, is part of that too. Um, you know, Hey, you know, it might help if you repeat back what she said that so that she knows that you heard her. So some of the ways that we kind of 
cue each other that I care about what you're saying, I'm interested in what you're saying, and I am absorbing it. Um, and those are things that even for teens, you're going to have to be gentle and subtle about it because they don't really want to hear as much as my like six-year-olds did. Um, but finding ways to help them learn those active listening skills, again, great for their relationship and great for their adulthood as well. I have one last thing. I And I have a feeling I might be opening too big of a can of worms for the few minutes we have in the show. I, as you were talking about Dina, you were, I think you were telling us, um, you know, as the kids are working something out, we want to give them as much room as possible to be autonomous. And I love that conceptually I can see it and it's brilliant. And I also see situations where one child is just much more domineering or stronger, or has a, let's say a wily set of skills where they are just taking over everything. What do you recommend in that situation? Do you still recommend staying out of it? Or do you recommend being a little bit more involved, but very much from the teaching place? How does that work? Yeah, that is a great question. And actually, it, it, it's on both sides. So what I mean by both sides is the person who is more domineering will probably need to be coached through some skills about, well, even what Kira was just saying, taking a listening posture. Sometimes they might even, even need some instruction about just turn taking that it isn't a monologue. It's a dialogue. And so I actually might stay nearby for that if they haven't had those skills because they might just not know how to do that. And so, oh, you know what? You've been, you've shared your perspective on what just happened. Let's let your sister have a chance to talk about how she's feeling about this situation. So just inviting the turn taking, you might need to be nearby for that, especially if they don't already have those skills. But it also means some training for the person who is less inclined to speak up to help them be a little more assertive, learn to ask for what they need. And again, they might need some coaching. So I couldn't agree more. I think it's it's about give them space, let them try to work it out. But where skills are lacking, you might need to stay nearby for a little bit of coaching. And as long as it doesn't become condescending, it's interesting, even older kids I've found are pretty receptive to that. Like there, as long as it doesn't come across as, oh my goodness, you guys have no idea how to have this conversation. Let me intervene and show you how it's done. Instead, it's more of an invitation. Again, thinking about perspective is everything. It's not a forcing, it's an invite. Hey, I'd like to invite you to pause for a moment so your brother can talk about his perspective here. That's an invitation. If, if you've got one that's willing to kind of ends up being the doormat, it's okay to say, you know, I'd like to invite you to say what would help you work past this. Can you tell your brother what you need right now? And that is often surprisingly well-received. And, and, and sometimes I was even shocked by that. So yeah, I think I would stay nearby if there are things they need to practice that they don't know yet. But Kira, this makes me think of your story with the television show and who chooses it. I think that's another good example. Oh yeah. And I mean, well, that's perfect. Cause I was going to hop in too and just say, I think you have to look 
if you're going to make a course correction and, and you haven't been implementing some of these skills, you have to start by going, where are my kids at? What skills do they have? And if you feel like they actually have all the skills, then Dina's spot on. Like the more that we can kind of go, I trust you with this. I remember the first time I said to my kids, you know what? You have all the skills you need to solve this yourselves. Let me know if you need help. It was so amazing and empowering. But I think if you've got kids where you're like, mm, I think some of those skills aren't there yet, then part of your course correction is going to be, okay, guys, <laughs> we're going to make some changes. Yeah. I'm going to help you through some of these things initially until I feel like you've got everything you need to do it yourself. Um, and that's okay too. But the TV show example, um, I have a more dominant, I have twins and I have one that's significantly more dominant than the other. And the one who's less dominant is not only less dominant, they're very giving. <laughs> they're not just like, willing to give over. They're actually just very generous as well. Um, and so that, that dynamic is very real. Um, and so there was a time where I discovered that, um, one was getting to pick the TV show every time. Cause I was letting them like, you guys go figure out your show. You have all the skills you need to do that. Turns out the skills they were using was one child made the other child watch what they wanted to watch. And so when I discovered that I said, you know, look, you both have something to learn here, you know, to the child that's more dominant. I was like, you need to learn how to really be considerate of your siblings feelings and their wants and needs. And to the child who's less dominant, I was like, and you, my friend need to learn how to ask for what you want and need. So for the next week, the less dominant child picked the show for the whole week. And I had to be up there. And it was so, I was, I called Dina and I was like, I have to do this, right? She was like, yep, you have to be up there. Because <laughs> I had to watch it and make sure that it was going, you know, the, I was helping coach them through it. Because we are coaches. I think we're actually coaches kind of the whole way. Mm -hmm. And so- in that, for that whole week, you know, what was my time to like, go, go watch a show became let's all go upstairs and pick a show. And I had to help the more dominant one, listen to the needs and wants of the less dominant one for a whole week until I felt like I was like, okay, you know, I think you guys have figured this out. I'd like to now offer you an opportunity to do this yourselves. Um, and I could slowly back away. And I, I like to that idea of you know, like you said, no one's going in here going, you guys have no idea what you're doing. And it's also reminding them that even the thing that in a sense you're helping them change or correct is also part of their gifts. I, a lot of times our kids who are more dominant or bossy, pushy, quote unquote, are kids who have great leadership skills that just haven't figured out how to hone those yet or are ones who are quiet or they're more thoughtful or they, you know, they take things and think about them more deeply, or they're just not attached to outcomes, which are great things in our kids, but it's helping them find that, that balance. So I love that. And I love that you guys have so much to offer. And I know that you have um, a wonderful, I guess, tool for parents. So if you guys want to share that and where we can find it. Yes, absolutely. So we have, it's two little freebies. Uh, one is a video called Three Essential Strategies for Raising Adults. And the other is, we call it a calendar of character traits. It's not an actual calendar, but it is 12 months where we take different character traits that we want to foster in our kids, like empathy or integrity, discipline, um, generosity. And we break down the character trait into what's the definition? How do we model that well for our kids? Um, what kind of conversations do we need to be having with them? What kind of activities can we be doing with them? What are some books we can read with them? Um, it is 
is geared towards younger kids, but there's definitely pieces of it that apply to teens. So I would encourage, and it's free. So I would encourage listeners to check it out and you can find it by going to bit.ly. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Raising Adults Podcast. And it is also, if you go to our website, the freebies everywhere. So you can also find it there. And it'll be, we'll have it in a link in the show notes too. So you can just pop on over to the show notes and get the link to the website right there. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. I appreciate your time and these insights. I think they're going to be incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for having us and for such a wonderful discussion. It was great to get to chat with you. And Mighty Parents, thank you for being here, for spending your time with us. If you found any of this conversation helpful, and if you have kids, I have 20-somethings, and I got tips out of this one. So share it with another parent, because we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know how to fix things in our families a lot of times. So share that and remember that if you're here, if you're listening, you are a mighty parent, you got this. And I will see you next week.